Do you remember a few years ago in the world of memes when there was this meme that was going around about how others see you and how you really are? I remember one about professors because it was like how how others see me and there's like this professor in these wooden bookshelves and he's got his little patches on his jacket and he's, I don't know, maybe even smoking a pipe or something like that. And how he really is. And it's just like disheveled, everything, all those papers everywhere, um, struggling to get to a meeting. Anyway, my guest this week talks a little bit about how well, he talks a lot about how others see him as a Muslim and talks about how he really is. And, you know, this is a big topic. So for History X, a show that is about the histories that you don't see, the histories that are not mainstream, that have been repressed, suppressed, or just forgotten, Omar is the author of a new book called Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped America. And the book is about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about is about how others see him uh, and how he has seen himself and his relationship to Islam. And one of the things that he remarks is that no matter what critiques he had of the place he grew up, of of the values and the religion that he was brought up with, it never changed the way other people saw him. So how did people come to see what a Muslim is? A lot of our views are informed through Hollywood and we kind of try to steer away from Hollywood in this show. After all, that's often just a smokescreen for real struggles about power, natural resources, that are just not represented or represented wildly inaccurately on the big screen. But this story, well, you've almost definitely never heard it. So we're going to dig down into it. It's going to be a two parter with Omar. First part, he's going to tell you about who Lactine is a little bit about where he comes from and how he's related to him. Stay right there. You're listening to History X on the Mighty Mighty CJSR 88.5 FM, Amiskwichiwa Skygun, Edmonton, Treaty 6 Territory. I'm your host, Russell Cobb, and I am here with co-host Sabrina Therani and our special guest. This episode is Omar Mualam. Omar is a local writer, filmmaker, um, man about town, gadfly, and good friend, actually. So, and can't really we were, be a man about town these days, can you? Yeah. I'm a man about the house. I'll tell you that. Everybody in this house knows every, my name. Every a man about the house. Yeah, he just sort of um, um, gallivants around his house. Um, and uh, I am not gallivanting. I'm sitting here and I'm looking at your article from the Ringer, Omar, um, about Frank Lactine. And it goes in interesting places, some places I did not know where you were going, and then, but I'm glad you took me there. I've been working on a book called Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas for the Last Four Years. And that's actually how this story about Frank Lactine came about. 
um, I had been asking my parents about some uh, Muslim history, family history, Lebanese American history that they might be aware of. Um, and my dad uh, asked me if I knew about this uh, once famous actor named Frank Lactine, who was from our, our uh, home village, Cabellies. And, um, you know, I'm used to, I'm, as, as a son of, of Lebanese immigrants, uh, or just anyone who has even a modicum of Lebanese blood in them, you're used to almost these conspiratorial, these conspiratorial um, uh, allegations that famous people are secretly Lebanese. Um, you know, it, Shakira and Salma Hayek and Vince Vaughn and Farrah Fawcett, all of those true, by the way, but, but true usually because it's like one grandparent or something. So I wasn't completely, uh, I, I, I didn't completely believe my dad um, right away that there was some, you know, old Hollywood star who was uh, from our, our home village. Um, but then when I, when I looked into it, it was, uh, and I learned about this silent film actor, Frank Lactine, who was in his time, the greatest villain on the screen. Um, I became really fascinated, went down this rabbit hole, learned more about him. And in that process, learned that we were actually related, that he was oh. uh, an ancestor of mine. Oh, oh my God. Oh. And then I became obsessed. Related. Okay. 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 Wait, before, before we get to that part, um, can you Tell us a little bit about where he was from, where this, you said you, mm. your family and Lactine's family are from the same village in Lebanon. We're from a town, I mean, we call it a village. It's actually more of a city. Um, it's uh, these days, tens of thousands of people, um, a large number of, of, of Syrian refugees. Um, but in Lebanon, it's just kind of your, your average uh, place, but it does have some cultural significance. Um, one is that it's on the Beirut-Damascus road. And so uh, it was always sort of a pathway for, for traders and military. And um, it, became, it became a front line in, um, in the Christian Druze civil war in 1860 that um, is, was actually a catalyst for, for a large, uh, the first big migration of Lebanese people to the West. After that civil war, Cabellies became part of this uh, Christian autonomous zone of what was then greater Syria. One of the interesting things too is um, after the civil war, uh, France stepped in and they set up what is considered uh, today the world's first peacekeeping mission. And they created this sort of triangle around the, the Christian autonomous zone and uh, so they were in Tripoli, Beirut, and oddly enough, in Cabellies. So, so it's a very, it's a very interesting uh, small town <laughs> yeah, in, in totally. the greater Syria region. Okay, so Frank Lactine, he's this kid. He's a seven-year-old kid uh, in in Lebanon. He ventures to America. They end up in in Massachusetts. Is that correct? Yeah, they end up yeah. in a booming city called Lawrence, um, which is now considered a, a suburb of Boston. But um, it had this massive, uh, what they called a Syrian colony, the biggest one in America outside New York. And it was all, all to service the textile industry. And so that's where his older brothers ended up. 
Um, and when he arrived with his dad five years later, that's where he ended up. Um, and he was working in the and he was working in the factories uh, as early as I think ten years old, possibly oh earlier. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Whoa. Oh, um, I don't know how I missed that part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's so he's working in this in this factory in this tech. Yeah, he was a child factory. laborer. I mean, terrible child conditions. Labor. Child laborer, early twentieth century. Um, and okay, so tell us his his life takes a dramatic turn. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens <laughs> during this dramatic turn? So after a few years of struggling um, and moving around the different sort of Syrian colonies in America, trying to find opportunities, uh, one of his older brothers ends up in Montreal. And Frank, at uh, 17 years old, goes there. I'm not sure if he was looking for work or if he was just visiting his brother, but by chance they happened to be shooting a movie nearby. And, um, you know, this would have been one of the first movies ever shot in Montreal. And, um, you know, Frank did what we would all do if we found out that there was a movie set, you know, if there was a movie being shot just a few blocks away, he went to go check it out. And there was already a crowd uh, around the set and his face just stood out. And the director, Frank Crane, just sought him out and he wanted him in the picture. He just basically handed him a job. His face is, <laughs> his face is important, uh, not just because it's the silent era and your face is everything, but if you look at pictures of him, um, a few things stand out. For one, he's just sort of, he's got like a resting villain face. The kinds of words that would be used to describe his face by the early Hollywood press uh, was uh, basilisk, wolfish, hungry, cadaverous looking. And the other thing is that he's he's ethnically ambiguous. He really could be anything. He's dark-skinned. He's very, he has very strong sort of like, Semitic features. You know, he could be Mediterranean. He could be North African. He could be Italian, South American, and especially he could be Native American. I was going to say, yes, he he was he had a common in this his as his career takes off. It sounds like he's in roles where he's cast as a quote unquote half breed. That that was his bread and butter. There, I mean, there was a huge orientalist uh, trend in early Hollywood, uh, largely thanks to the popularity of Arabian Nights and The Sheik. But by the time his career started to take over, Hollywood and and Americans in general, they they were kind of like over it. They were over the like desert tales. Um, So he only played, I think, one Middle Eastern role during the, the silent era. Most of his roles were as as uh, Chinese heavies and especially as Native Americans. One in particular would make him a star and it was called Hawk of the Hills. This close-up of his face and he's the leader of a band of Indians and renegade whites. Uh, Sorry, he's the merciless merciless. leader. 
of a band of Indians and renegade whites, and he seeks new prey. And he sees an, uh, an encampment, uh, I guess, of, uh, I don't know, white cowboys. White, what were white guys doing in the West those days? Gold, gold prospectors, whatever they were. Well, it was in, in it, and the hills refer to this. It's not, the, the, the opening title was this, uh, in this, this bucolic West where in the early 70s, and I don't think that means the 1970s. <laughs> I think we're talking about the 1870s. Let me show you another clip from Hawk of the Hills, um, because I think I think this shows. Uh, this gives you a sense of his talent for acting, which I think was was really real, and it was different for the silent era. I'll I'll, I'll tell you why I think that after. It gives you a sense of his talent, which I think was was quite was quite real and quite raw. You know, this was a time of overacting, as you can see from the uh, white hero that he had cornered in that scene and was about to whip. Um, you know that that man is, <laughs> you know, he's he's obviously in distress, and you can see that because his body is literally shaking, but. Frank Lactine had mastered this self-possession um, where he can, you know, he can intimidate with his gaze and with his poise. And it was, it was really subtle for the time, for the silent era. Maybe we wouldn't call it subtle today, uh, but at that time, it definitely was. Uh, a historian wrote about him. His pantomime was subdued and quite restrained, giving an audience the feeling that he wasn't really acting at all, but that the evil which seemed to exude from his pores was indeed very natural. Okay, so clearly he is a, a go-to in terms of villain, and he can fill any kind of role, um, anything from anything that is sort of off-white to to black to to Asian in your article, as you were kind of reflecting on this, you said, you quoted another scholar saying, Arabs are the most, the most maligned group in Hollywood. Um, but the early depictions had this sort of magical Bedouin quality. It was, it was a while before we got to the, the stereotypes of the, of the, of the terrorist and the sort of yes. how, how so, did he, did he play a role in that? Did he play a role in shifting that stereotype? I don't think he played a role. Did did Frank Lactine? Yeah. No, I think I don't think he necessarily played a role in it. Those stereotypes were well established before he had even uh, started his acting career, and then the stereotypes of the radical Islamist and the terrorist, um, those had barely started uh, near the end of his career, and um, and really took off just a few years after he had died. The the person that you quote, Jack Shaheen, is uh, a, a Lebanese American scholar uh, who wrote the book Real Bad Arabs, which is this uh, tome of um, of his life's work, which was cataloging films for racist stereotypes um, across the board, but especially Arab stereotypes. And what he had found was that the frequency of um, of positive or neutral Arabs um, in movies and television uh, were 
comparatively, you know, tiny compared to every other ethnicity. Um, and it went on for for much, much longer. So while, you know, the the other awful stereotypes of like, you know, shysty Jews and um, boozy Irish and, you know, diseased uh, Chinese people, these things uh, went on for too long, but they did, you know, start to fade in the 1930s and they, they uh, evaporated more or less relatively quickly. Um, but Native American stereotypes and especially Middle Eastern stereotypes and Muslim stereotypes, those those held strong for a really long time. Really, the the turning point for Middle Eastern stereotypes didn't happen until 19... Okay, folks, let's take a little break. You're listening to History X, the show about what they didn't teach you in school. I'm your host, Russell Cobb. We are broadcasting from CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Amiskwichiwa Skygon. That's on Treaty 6 territory, Edmonton, Alberta. And my guest is Omar Mualam, a writer, journalist, filmmaker. He's written a new book, will be released next fall. It's called Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped America. And he's telling us a little bit about Frank Lactine, an important actor you've almost certainly never heard of who contributed to the birth of a few stereotypes. Let's get back to the interview. Now let's let's go back to Lactine. So he's like this this uber villain, yeah. and um and but he's still in the silent era, um, yeah, with a penchant for for Native American roles. Oh yeah 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 right with for Native American roles. Yeah, I mean what? to the to the point where he, you know, he was he almost I mean he was he was kind of a pretendian. You know, I don't, he didn't wait, 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 you mean he was like, did he, did he go full on and, and, and get, he never claimed that he was, he didn't go as far as like, um, (laughs) Iron Eyes Cody Mm -hmm. or even Johnny Depp for that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, he did, (laughs) you know, he was on the set of this movie called the last frontier, um, you know, playing one of, uh, probably the, you know, the chief or, or the renegade chief or something like that. And he requested that the Navajo extras build him a Hogan as sort of like a trailer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, he, you know, I, I think he was trying to show. Was he trying to get into character? I think, trying to show I, that his. I think so. Or trying to maybe, you know. Prove his, bona, <sighs> prove his bona fides. I don't know. I felt like I found this, this article um, from a Pennsylvania newspaper, um, a Hollywood, you know, reporter uh, said this about him. Lactine is a student of Indian lore and is familiar with many of the quaint customs of the Navajos. He spent considerable time among them, gleaning gleaning much from their everyday life that proved valuable to him in portraying the role of Pawnee killer. So yeah, I mean, I, I think he you know, he he maybe stopped short of claiming that he was Native American. I mean, the funny thing is, people misidentified his ethnicity constantly he was misidentified by other actors or by uh, other producers or by journalists as um persian italian spanish russian um but he was always proudly arab 
to the point where he actually embellished his Arab culture. How so? So when he was interviewed about it, he, you know, he had claimed that he was a trained Oriental rug maker, for instance, um, and said that he was like groomed to follow in his family's footsteps before catching the acting bug. His family is my family. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were uh, farmers. That that's what they were. I know this for a fact. Um, and when they came to America, they they worked menial jobs. Uh, his brother was a barber. Another brother worked in a celluloid factory. He worked in the cotton mill. And his dad, the the apparent Oriental rug trader, was unemployed. Mm. Um, the census records show that. Uh, the census records also show that when he was 12 years old, um, he was uh, reported as recorded as uh, being 20 years old, uh, most likely to get past the child labor laws of the state at that time. Mm. So he's not real. He's not the most reliable narrator. You know, you quote uh, some Arab American actors present day who have you know, taking a stand to say, you know, we, we will, we will not portray these roles that, that contribute to this, this stereotype. Um, on the one hand, it's interesting. Lactine seems to be a guy who's, you know, proud, like you said, proud of his, of his Arab heritage. And on in the an, other in hand, a, in, an, he... in an era, in an era where, yeah. where people would just completely gloss over that. But on the other hand, he he seems like he's perfectly willing to to do whatever um, is he's told to do by his Hollywood bosses. Yeah, I, I it's it's true. He he seemed to be proud of it, and yet all too ready to disparage his people, and not just his people, uh, all <laughs> all ethnic people. Yeah, right. um, Right. You know, I, it's it's interesting when I when I started to research this, um, I wondered, is there even an interview where he addresses racism? You know, some of his contemporaries, immigrant Hollywood contemporaries like Rudy Valentino, whose most famous role actually was playing an Arab in The Sheik. I mean, that movie uh, created the first sort of orientalist craze of, of Hollywood. Um, he was interviewed by a reporter who tried to separate Valentino from the Arabs, you know, tried to, to make it very clear to the readers that Valentino's Italian and, and he was just playing the kind of Arab savage. And Valentino pushed back. He, um, and he said about the Arabs, uh, they're not savages. People are not savages because they have dark skin. The Arabs are dignified and keen-brained. And so he was quicker to defend them than Frank Lactine. There's no such thing of Frank Lactine ever saying that. He's rarely quoted. I've only found two instances where he was quoted. Usually whatever he expressed to the reporters was paraphrased. Um, I don't know if that's because he he didn't have uh, such a strong command of English or whatever, um, or if it's just that that was the 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 style of um, I don't know that was the style of reporting in those days. The closest thing I could find to sort of get an idea of what his what his ambitions were is 
this, uh, this small article. It's really just like a few lines in, in sort of the, the Hollywood section or the entertainment section. And it said, the greatest ambition of Frank Lactine is to live the life of the tax-free road, to earn much, to distribute more, and to make mankind happy. And okay. when I... <laughs> okay. Sounds kind when, of like an obituary, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> when I... I mean, it was written at the at the height of his fame. Which when would I, be when, by the way? When, which when would... Is... Which would have been the the late 1920s, 1927, really the Hawk of the Hills marked the peak of his career, and it was only 10 years into his career. It would all go downhill from there. Um, but when I when I read that paraphrase quote, whatever it was, it actually reminds me of um, sort of the people pleasing benevolence of many newcomers and immigrants. Um, including my my family, like I, I recognize that tone in my uh, from my elders who, for the life of them, cannot will not say anything disparaging about Canada or the way that Canadians have ever treated them, even though they know that they've had negative experiences, they just won't say it. They want to focus on the positive and they want to be they want to be likable. You know, it, it, there's this, that quote sort of reminded me of this newspaper clipping I have from my family when they opened their, their family restaurant in 1987. I was just okay. uh, not even two years old at the time. And my dad is quoted as saying, um, I hope to serve the town and the community my best. I came to the town so that it will have a nice place for people to eat. And, and he just kind of like went on being this like really benevolent, you know, immigrant. And, you know, you talk about how much he enjoyed cooking for people and working for others. And it's like, that is a different dad than the one that I witnessed barking orders in the kitchen. Like that's not, he did not enjoy cooking for people. Um, you know, he only seemed to enjoy the end of the day when he was ca counting, you know, the money in the cash register. Um, I think that my dad was saying what people wanted to hear uh, so that, you know, we could have the life that he imagined for us, just as Frank Lectine was probably saying what he thought people wanted to hear so that his family could have the life that they imagined for themselves. The American dream is about what you imagine for yourself and making it come true. I know, it's Canadian as well. So what happened when Lactine's dream didn't come true? Here's this story of this man who has this magical beginning, comes from a childhood in a sweatshop to becoming one of the biggest stars in Hollywood and sounds like should work out great for him, right? Well, in part two, you'll get to get insight into a secret letter that was revealed to Omar about what Lactine really thought. That's on part two of the show. That'll be in two weeks. Please stick around and listen to it. My guest this episode has been Omar Mualam. 
He has a new book. It's called Praying to the West, How Islam Shaped the Americas. Just can't wait to get into that one. You've been listening to History X, the show about what they don't teach you in school. I am Russell Cobb, the host, and we broadcast every two weeks from CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Amiskwichiwa Skygon, Treaty 6 territory. We also podcast. You can find us on all your favorite podcast providers. And this show would not be possible without the help of assistant producer Sabrina Theroni. Thank you, Sabrina, for cutting down what was a fascinating interview, but a very long interview into some digestible bits. And of course, thank you to Omar for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, You know, one of the deep cuts on this interview is we were in the middle of a discussion. It's getting pretty heavy and uh, my chair just like blew up. It was so weird. It just exploded right in the middle of the interview. And uh, I think they thought I died. I don't know. Everyone was a little shocked. You can find us on Facebook if you just search up History X CJSR. You can tweet at me, Russell S. Cobb on Twitter. You can send me an old-fashioned email, rcobb at ualberta.ca. And you can read my book if you're really interested in repressed histories and the weird turns they take on your own identity. Check out my book. It's called The Great Oklahoma Swindle, Race, Religion, and Lies in America's Weirdest State. So, it's been a pleasure. See you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.